0: The Old Testament scripture reading for today is Isaiah 61, Isaiah 61. The New Testament reading is Luke 4, 14 through 30. This will be the sermon text for today, Isaiah 61, Luke 4, 14 and following. The title of this morning's sermon is, No Prophet is Acceptable in His Hometown. Isaiah chapter 61, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall ru- rise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with The garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is a wonderful passage. Uh, you can hear the voice of the Messiah himself in Isaiah 61, uh, can't you, uh, brothers and sisters, as he declares what he will do and how those in him will be so richly blessed, not only from amongst the Jews, but even all the nations of the earth. Let us go now to Luke 4, 14-30, our sermon text for today. This, remember, took place immediately after the, or soon after, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness and His victory over the evil one. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. And He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he, Jesus, rolled up the scroll. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days... In the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, and all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Luke wrote what he wrote in his gospel so that we might be sure that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah who was promised long ago and so that we might trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. I will likely remind you of this fact over and over again throughout our sermon series through the gospel of Luke. Luke stated that this was his purpose from the very beginning and we would be wise to remember this stated purpose as we come to each and every passage contained within this gospel. He wrote, so that we might be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. And how has Luke presented Jesus to us in his attempt to persuade us about these things? Answer, he has presented Jesus to us. As the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures, Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures in His conception, His birth, His early childhood, His baptism, His victory over Satan in the wilderness. He fulfilled explicit prophecies. He also fulfilled the types and shadows contained within the Old Testament Scriptures. He is the second and greater Adam, the second and greater Moses, and the true and faithful Israel of God. These things we have considered, brothers and sisters, but I remind you of them now so that we might properly understand the text that is before us. Here, Luke wants us to be certain that Jesus is the Messiah. He continues with this same approach in the passage that is before us today. Here, Luke shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 61. In addition to this, Luke wants us to see that from the very beginning, Jesus came to bring salvation, not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles also. Lastly, Luke shows us that this was the thing that most aggravated the Jews and led to the rejection of Christ. And so we will consider these three things this morning, that Jesus is the one of whom Isaiah 61 spoke. We are going to see that He came to bring salvation, not to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles also, and that this fact aggravated many of the Jews who did not believe in Him. So, the first thing that we must see in our passage for today is that Jesus claimed, in a a most remarkable way, to be the Anointed One of whom Isaiah spoke. Messiah means Anointed One, and here Jesus explicitly claims to be the Promised Messiah in the passage that is before us. Luke 4.14 says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country. After the victory of Jesus over the devil in the wilderness, He went into the region of Galilee. This is the region to the north of Jerusalem, and to the west of the Sea of Galilee. Our text says that He went there in the power of the Spirit. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit, We are to remember that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit at His baptism. Luke 3.21 says when Jesus was baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. We are to remember also that it was the Spirit who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And it was the Spirit who sustained Jesus so that He would win the victory over the evil one. Of course, when we speak of Jesus being anointed with the Spirit, we are to consider Him according to His human nature and not according to His divine nature. The Spirit filled and empowered Jesus as a man to strengthen and uphold Him, to accomplish His work, that is to say, the work that was given to the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, this is the same Spirit that Christ has poured out on all who have faith in Him. I think we must make this connection here. The Spirit anointed, filled, empowered Jesus to do His unique work as the Lord's Messiah. But having accomplished His work and having ascended to the right hand of the Father, He sends forth the same Spirit upon all who are united to Him by faith. Of course, the Spirit does not empower us to do the same work that Christ did. His work was unique. But this same Spirit does empower God's people, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, to do what God has called them to do. Now, Luke does not tell us much about Christ's ministry in Galilee. He only says that a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. In Luke 4.16, we are told that Jesus came to Nazareth, that is a town in the region of Galilee. Where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I want you to notice that it was the custom of Jesus the Messiah to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. This was his custom, presumably, certainly, for his whole life. He would be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Synagogue means assembly place. Synagogues were meeting houses where the Jews would gather together to hear the scriptures read and explained, to pray, to sing, and to fellowship with one another. That should sound familiar to you. That's what we do here each and every Lord's Day. The Jewish synagogues of the first century were, in fact, the prototypes of our Christian churches. In fact, James refers to the Christian meeting house as a synagogue. In two two of his epistle, isn't that interesting? He just uses that same term to describe the meeting house of the Christians. The point is this, Jesus the Messiah was in church, that is to say, in the assembly on the Sabbath day. That was his custom, and that should be our custom too. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, to cite Hebrews 10.25. If you claim to be a Christian and it is your habit to neglect the assembly, I think that needs to change and I would exhort you to change that very soon. It was the custom of Christ to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day and indeed this was the custom of the early church and is to be the custom of the church to this present day. Now, though it is true that we should imitate Christ by assembling with God's people on the Lord's day, we cannot imitate what he did in Nazareth on this particular Sabbath day. We are told that he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. We must remember that at this time uh, the people of God did not have bound Bibles like ours. In fact, the New Testament had not yet even been written. Uh, but the Old Testament scriptures they did have were not in bound form like this, but rather these books were uh, stored and, and and kept and read individually as scrolls. And so Jesus stood up to read and this scroll was brought to him, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. The text goes on to say that he unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it is written. They did not have chapters and verses either. So he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. Can you picture this scene? This was a very interesting thing that Jesus did. And everyone in the synagogue knew that he did something Uh, Very unusual here, so that the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. So what did he do? What did he do that was so unusual? Well, well, he must have read this passage in such a way so as to indicate that he was the one of whom this passage spoke. In fact, if you read Isaiah chapter 61, it's written in, in the voice of the Messiah himself. Uh, It is here Isaiah writing this, but it's written in the voice of the Messiah. So for for many, many years, for many hundreds of years, the people of God enjoyed Isaiah 61. It was undoubtedly read in their synagogues, but it was not read by anyone as if He was the one that this was about, you see. But Jesus stood up. He took the scroll and He read it as if it were intended to be His voice all along. And then, without making any comment at all... (laughs) He simply sat back down and everybody began to stare at him. Uh, They understood his point. They understood his message. He did not read this passage as if it were about someone else, as if it were about the Messiah to come, but he read it in such a way as if these were, in fact, intended to be his words, his words as the Messiah. And then he began to clarify and to even make it more explicit that this was what he was claiming. In Luke 4.21, we read that he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am the one of whom Isaiah spoke. I am the Lord's anointed of Isaiah 61. That was his message, and it was a message that only he could proclaim. Now, Jesus only read verses 1 and 2, Of Isaiah 61, but as I have taught you before, when a verse or two from the Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament, we had better go there and take a look around. The one or two verses that are cited are oftentimes meant to point us to an entire passage or even a broad theme. I've told you before that these brief citations are meant to function like hyperlinks on a web page. We are supposed to click the link, if you will, and then once we are there in that other place, we are to take a look around. We're to browse around and to see uh, what that passage is all about. We read Isaiah 61 in its entirety at the beginning of the sermon. It's a beautiful passage that reveals the mission of the Messiah. How appropriate that Jesus would refer to this text at the start of His ministry. He referred to this text at the very start of His ministry. He took the scroll up and He said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, etc., We are to remember the anointing of Jesus at His baptism. We are to remember the victory that was won in the wilderness after the Spirit drove Him there to be tempted by the evil one. And then He comes back into the region of Galilee and even to His hometown in Nazareth in the power of the Holy Spirit and He says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, etc. This is what God has called the Messiah to do for his people. It is stated here beautifully in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. At the end of verse 3 of Isaiah 61, the focus shifts from the work of the Messiah to the benefits that would come to those who are blessed in the Messiah. It says that they, that is, those blessed in the Messiah, those united to him by faith, they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. I cannot exegete the totality of Isaiah 61 for you. I'm just wanting to give you now a little bit more of an understanding of all that is communicated in that beautiful text. We are to read beyond verses 1 and 2 which Jesus quoted and we are to consider the whole passage and we are to see that this passage is filled with good news concerning what the Messiah would do and the benefits that would come to those who are united to Him by faith. It is a wonderful passage that reveals to us that when the Messiah comes He will accomplish the salvation of His people and it will not only be the Jews who are blessed in Him It will not be only a restoration of the faithful within Israel, but as we read carefully Isaiah 61, we see that foreigners are going to be blessed as well, that the nations are going to be engrafted into the Messiah and blessed in Him. It is a truly marvelous prophecy, and it was such a very extraordinary thing that Jesus did to take up that prophecy and to read it as if these words were meant to be His words. Indeed, they were meant to be His words. It is not surprising then that Luke tells us in 4.22 that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth and they said, is not this Joseph's son? We should remember that the word marveled was used back in Luke 2.33 where it is said that Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about Jesus. The same Greek word was also used in 218, 163, and 121. The people wondered or marveled over, the she- over what the shepherds told them, what Zechariah wrote, and why he was delayed in the temple. Uh, the point is this, the Lord was doing incredible things in these days, in the days when Jesus was brought into the world at the time of His birth. And also the Lord was doing incredible things as Jesus began His earthly ministry. And what did people do? But they began to marvel, marvel, and marvel over all that God was accomplishing in their midst. They marveled, it says, at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? I take this to be simply an honest question at this point in time. They were wondering how it could be that this Jesus the son of Joseph as it was supposed remember Luke 3:23 could possibly be the Lord's Messiah. The question was an honest one and the response to Jesus in Nazareth was at first favorable. In fact, I'm sure the people were thinking this, how marvelous it is that the Messiah would come from us, from Nazareth and from Joseph as it was supposed. Uh, They were beginning to wrap their heads around the idea that the long-awaited and promised Messiah was going to come from their hometown. Uh, This was going to be their hometown boy. But things changed, for the worse, very quickly. And I think we would be wise to ask the question, why? Why did the people change their opinion of Jesus so quickly? How did they go from speaking well of Him to wanting to kill Him by throwing Him off the cliff just outside of town? And the answer is this. Jesus did not merely tell them what they wished to hear, but spoke the truth to them instead, and they did not like the truth. Specifically, Jesus clarified that He did not come to bring salvation to the Jews only, but to the Gentiles also. Indeed, He came to redeem all who are poor in spirit, all who look unto Him for salvation. I want you to look with me at Luke 4.23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. This hints at the suffering that Jesus would endure as the Messiah, for only he who suffers needs to be healed. We will learn as we progress through Luke and through the other Gospels someday, that not many were interested in following a suffering Messiah. Hmm? Do you remember this theme from the other Gospels? They wanted a victorious Messiah, a strong and powerful Messiah, one who would overthrow Rome, uh, for example, and bring blessing to them. But when Jesus begins to start talking about uh, needing healing, Physician, heal yourself, you will say to me. Um, they all of a sudden were not so interested. People will have a conquering Messiah, yes, but a suffering Messiah, no, no. But we know that those who will have Christ as Savior must have Him as a suffering Savior a hum, and humbly identifying with Him in, in, in His suffering. And then Jesus predicted that they would say, What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. What did He do in Capernaum? Among other things, He healed people of their suffering physical ailments. Luke does not tell us about this in his gospel. If you wish to know about it, you can go to Mark 2, 1-12. through 12. Uh, There we are told of all the marvelous and miraculous things that Jesus did in this, in this little town. He healed people of their physical ailments. And here Jesus is predicting, uh, undoubtedly you will say this to me, the works that you did there do here also. The story about Elijah and Zarephath that Jesus referred to is found in 1 Kings 17. The story about Elisha and Naaman, the Syrian, is found in 2 Kings 5. And what do these two stories share in common? Well, they are both about the faith of Gentiles in the Old Covenant era and of God showing mercy to them while Israel was unfaithful, you see. And so God was bringing judgment upon Israel because of their disobedience. There was a great famine in the land. Uh, There were many who were in need within Israel. But who did God bless through Elijah and Elisha? He blessed Gentiles. They were the one that displayed faith and God blessed them and passed over His chosen people, the Jews. And Jesus decides to emphasize that with those in His hometown. Uh, These three things that he states, they all carry a kind of theme and they lead the people to change their perspective on him very quickly. What do these three sayings of Jesus, as recorded in Luke 4, 23-27, share in common? Well, they all seem to emphasize the heavenly, eternal, and universal focus of Jesus' ministry. And this ran counter- to the earthly, temporal, and ethnocentric expectations that many within Israel had for the Messiah. I'm trying to put all of this together for you. The people went from responding favorably to Jesus to wanting to throw Him off a cliff really quickly. We have to ask the question, what caused this change? Well, He had a few things to say to them that they did not like. And I am saying to you that what Jesus said to them had a heavenly, eternal, And universal focus, or a global focus, we might say. It seems that the people were more concerned with earthly, temporal, and ethnocentric concerns. And so they turned on Him. You are probably familiar with the idea that many within Israel expected that when the Messiah appeared, He would overthrow the Romans and restore Israel as a nation to the glory that she once had in the days of King David. Can you see how that expectation was earthly? It was about a kingdom on earth. Can you see how that expectation was temporal? It was about having an earthly kingdom win in the future? No, now. When the Messiah comes, he will restore Israel. Uh, To the days of glory, and he will do it now by overthrowing the Romans. And can you see how this expectation was also ethnocentric? And by that I mean it was centered upon the ethnicity of the Hebrews. God would bring blessing again upon the Hebrews, but he would not be concerned with the Gentiles. Or so the idea was. It was about blessings falling on the Jews, but not the Gentiles. And you are also probably familiar with how many were interested in following Jesus when they thought that he would feed them with physical bread and heal them of their physical infirmities. But those same people quickly abandoned him when he began to speak of suffering and sacrifice in this life and of the heavenly and eternal focus of his ministry i am thinking here in particular of the story of the feeding of the 5000 as it is recorded in john chapter 6 do you remember how many people eagerly followed him out into the wilderness they they followed him out in the wilderness they listened to his teaching and he fed them and jesus began to speak of heavenly and eternal truce and all of a sudden they didn't care for him so much and he explicitly said yes you followed me because you wanted physical bread. But when he began to speak of his body being the true bread from above they said no more of this Jesus we will go in another direction. You see these themes run very heavy in the gospels and I think they are present here in Luke's gospel as Jesus began to tell the truth to people in his hometown concerning his mission they did not like what they heard. They wanted to be blessed on earth. They wanted to be blessed now. They wanted to be blessed uniquely. And they were not so much concerned about the world outside, you see. But Jesus began to teach that He came to do things that were, that were heavenly, that were eternal, and that were, that were universal in their scope. He came to bring blessing not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. We know from the Gospels and other places that this especially enraged the Jews. In fact, we know that this enraged the Jews even in the days of the early church, that as the apostles began to take the gospel to the Gentiles, they were strongly opposed by many of the non believing Jews who were around them. Here I am saying to you, brothers and sisters, that this story about Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth has a little of this going on. It has a lot of this going on, in fact. Jesus hints at his future suffering. He suggests that he did not come mainly to heal of physical infirmities. And then he stresses his concern for the Gentiles by mentioning the stories of Elijah and Elisha, along with Zarephath and Naaman. And it was at this point that the people turned on him in a violent way. Luke 4, 28-30 says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. What was it that so aggravated these people, leading them to reject Jesus as the Messiah? As I've said, and in brief, it was this. He suggested that the Jews, yes, even, in, even the Jews in his hometown would reject him, While many Gentiles would receive Him and be blessed by Him, just as Zarephath of Sidon and Naaman the Syrian were in the days of Elijah and Elijah. If you have read the New Testament carefully, you know that this teaching, that Gentiles would be included or engrafted into Abraham, was very controversial amongst the Jews. It led in part to the crucifixion of Christ, and it led to the persecution of Paul and the other apostles as well. I want you to take, for example, Acts 13, verses 44 through 52. The context is Paul and Barnabas' ministry at Antioch in Pisidia. The text says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that is to say, first to the Jews in this town. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth And with the Holy Spirit. So, this story, of course, took place after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the ministry of Paul and Barnabas. But you see, this theme continues. The Jews were enraged at the idea that the gospel of the kingdom would go to the Gentiles, and they treated Paul and Barnabas in much the same way that those in Nazareth treated Jesus, though he was their hometown boy. I cite this text because I think it illustrates the theme that is found throughout the New Testament. In a sense, brothers and sisters, I think it is understandable that the Jews would have a difficult time comprehending and coming to terms with this great transition, a transition from a focus upon ethnic Israel to a focus upon all nations, including Israel. I think there is a sense in which it is it is understandable that they had a difficult time comprehending and coming to terms with this great transition. From the days of Abraham onward, and especially from Moses onward, the Hebrews were set apart from all the nations as a special and holy people. Special covenants were made with them. The law was given to them. The temple was in their midst, and the promises of God were entrusted to them. Think of it. That's a very long period of time, running from the days of Abraham all the way until the coming of the Christ into the world. And change is difficult. We all know this, don't we, brothers and sisters? So we can sympathize a bit with those Jews, with those Hebrews, with those Israelites who are living in this time of transition. When the Messiah came into the world, He brought with Him massive changes. He came not to destroy the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. He was not against the old covenant, but He did come to fulfill it and to inaugurate a new covenant. The kingdom of God would no longer be confined to Israel in a prototypical way, but it came in power and would spread to the ends of the earth after Christ lived, died, and rose again. And the new covenant people of God would not consist of those who descended from Abraham according to the flesh, but it would be made up of all who have faith, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. If you wish to see direct teaching about this, you may go and read Romans 9. Through 11. These were massive changes. and so we should not be surprised that some struggle to understand these things and to come to terms with them. We even see the disciples of Jesus himself, the apostles struggling to come to terms with this. Do you remember that story about Peter in the book of Acts in chapters 10 and 11, how he shown that vision of all the different kinds of food that were once forbidden him? And a voice comes from heaven saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Why did I bring up that passage? I don't have the time to teach on it now. But that passage, you should know, is about this great transition. These ceremonial laws that once were imposed upon the Jewish people were taken away. A great change has taken place. The old covenant is gone. The new has come. Peter is no longer bound to these, in this case, dietary restrictions. And Peter is perplexed. He is perplexed. Even Peter... And so it took time for him to come to terms with this. But the point is this, Peter, being led by the Holy Spirit, Peter, being a good student of Holy Scripture, did come to terms with it. He came to see that indeed, yes, the Messiah has inaugurated a new covenant, a new era has broken in upon human history, a new covenant has been made. So, I think we should be somewhat sympathetic, but there is another sense in which it is surprising that so many from amongst the Jews were caught off guard by this great transition. For these things were foretold in their own scriptures. It's not as if these things were never spoken of before. These things were foretold in their own scriptures. They should have known. They should have known about the coming new covenant. They should have known all about the work that the Messiah would do. They should have known that when the Messiah came, the kingdom of God would spread to the ends of the earth. They should not have been so caught off guard or surprised. We should remember that the Messiah was promised, and all of these points here have to do with the Messiah blessing the nations, the Messiah blessing all the peoples of the earth. The Messiah was promised, remember, not first to Abraham, the father of the Jews. The Messiah was promised Not first to Abraham, but to Adam and Eve. And the curse that was pronounced upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15. That is very significant. The Messiah would come into the world through the Jews. But whose Messiah would He be? He would be the Messiah of the world. He would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would come to bring remedy to the children, the fallen children of Adam and Eve. Not just to the children of of Abraham we must pay careful attention to this the messiah is promised not for the first time in genesis 12 but in genesis 315 he was promised not to the jews only but to all who descended from adam that is to say to all people by the way this is what john 316 speaks of when it says for god so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Nowhere does this text teach a universal atonement. Nowhere does it say that Christ shed his blood for every single person who has ever lived. That idea is read into the text by the universalists. Here is what the text does say God set his love not on the Jews only, but on the world. That is, the whole fallen planet and every nation within, not the Jews only. Christ came to provide salvation for people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And who will be saved? Or perhaps I'll ask it this way, for whom did Christ die? The text says whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, it is those who believe in Christ who will be saved. And these are the ones for whom Christ died, but they are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. For God so loved the Jews, the text does not say. For God so loved the world, is what the text says. And that is the great truth that is being stressed here in John Chapter 3, it is drawing attention to this great transition that has taken place. The kingdom of God is going to expand to the farthest reaches of the earth. Back to the point, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is not only the son of Abraham, who is the father of the Hebrews. He is the second and greater Adam, who was the father of humanity. He came, therefore, not as the Messiah of the Jews only, but as the world's Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Messiah was promised not first to Abraham, but to Adam. That is significant. And even when Adam and his descendants, the Hebrews, were set apart by God as a special people from all the nations of the earth, it was revealed to him, that is to Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him and through them. Listen to what the Lord said to Abraham from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And now the Lord said to Abram, he was called by that name at first, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when the Lord did set the Hebrews apart as a special people to make a holy nation of them, from the very beginning it was revealed to Abraham that the purpose was this, to bless him and his descendants so as to bless the nations through them. So the Jews should not have been surprised when Jesus Christ the Messiah, the true son of Abraham, came into the world that he came to do this very thing to bless the nations, for these things were foretold. And the Psalms and the prophets are also filled with references to the nations and of God's plan to reconcile sinners to Himself from all nations through Israel's Messiah. I want you to note this especially, the book of Isaiah. The book that Jesus read from in Nazareth is especially rich with this theme. Uh, The book of Isaiah is filled with this theme, God's concern for the nations, God's plan to bring salvation to the nations. Consider Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. It speaks of the Messiah saying, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. This is the Lord calling the Messiah in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, isn't that an interesting way of speaking? The Messiah would be given as a covenant for the people, now listen, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is a reference to the nations who were kept in darkness for so long the Messiah would come. He would be given as a covenant for the people. He would be a light to the nations. Listen to Isaiah 49.6. It is about the Messiah also. The Lord speaks to the Messiah saying, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to, rise, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Do you hear it? It's quite clear. It's, it's too little of a thing for you to come to be Israel's Messiah only. When you come, you will be the Messiah that reconciles the world to God. All people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, all who have faith in the Messiah will be reconciled to God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 55.5 5 also speaks of the Messiah saying, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. So this speaks of all nations coming to give glory to God through the Messiah. You are probably noticing that we are creeping ever closer to the very passage in Isaiah that Jesus read from in the synagogue in Nazareth. He read from Isaiah 61 and afterwards sat down, saying, "'Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.'" And you should know that Isaiah 61 speaks of the nations too. Verse 6 says, You shall eat the wealth of the nations. Verses 8 and 9 says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who seek them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Verse 11 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. So this theme of God blessing the nations through Israel and her Messiah runs through to the end of the book of Isaiah, and it even intensifies. I want you to listen to how the book of Isaiah concludes. Isaiah 66:18 18-23 says, for I know their works and their thoughts, says the Lord. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard. My fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also will take for priests and Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring in your name remain from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. What a marvelous conclusion to the Gospel of Isaiah. I like to call it that, for that is what it is. It has the gospel of Jesus Christ contained within it. It is, it. it is the gospel of Isaiah. There is good news here that through the Messiah that has been promised, through the Messiah who will be brought into the world, through Israel, the nations will be blessed and they will come and worship before the Lord. Jesus Christ the Messiah is the Savior of the world. He is also the Judge of the world. And Isaiah's prophecies speak very clearly concerning all of that. That is the point. And that is what Jesus declared when He was there in His hometown of Nazareth. That He has come for this purpose. Not to bless ethnic Israel, but to bless the true Israel of God. That is to say, the remnant from within Israel, those of faith, and even those from amongst the Gentiles who will believe. You see, if you do not like this way of speaking, you need to read Paul more. This is the way he speaks. There is no longer a distinction between Jew and Gentile under the New Covenant. In fact, the true Israel of God consists of all who have the faith of Abraham. Not the the DNA of Abraham, but the faith of Abraham makes one to be a true child of God. That is the message the Messiah was proclaiming in Nazareth. They loved Him when He was going to be their hometown boy. (laughs) They loved Him when they thought He would bring prosperity to them now. They loved him when, he thought, when they thought that he would bring healing to them now. They loved him when they thought that he might bring power to them now. But the words that he spoke to them revealed that he was not concerned with such things. But his mission was heavenly, eternal, and universal. Before we conclude, I think it is important for us to make a couple connections between this passage and the previous one. In the previous passage, Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, and he was victorious, as you know. And the last line in that passage says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. What does that mean? This means that the devil would continue to tempt Jesus throughout his ministry. In my mind, I think of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus there suffered and was in anguish and prayed to the Father, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So even there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the evil one was tempting Jesus to change His course and to not go through with all of the suffering, and yet the Lord was victorious. So He was victorious in the wilderness in the beginning. He was victorious in the Garden of Gethsemane at the end. But I think we must see that the evil one was assaulting Jesus. He was biting at His heel, if you will. Genesis 3.15 For the entirety of his earthly ministry. In fact, the evil one is tempting and testing Jesus even here in our passage. How so? Through these evil men. That is how he is tempting and testing Jesus. You see, those in his hometown loved him at first, but then they turned on him and even threatened to kill him and we must see that this was the work of the evil one. This was the work of the evil one. The second connection that i wish to make with uh, the previous uh, w- with the previous passage is this do not forget how the evil one tempted jesus he tempted him three times and in three different ways but there was a common theme between them all but one of the temptations involved this he showed jesus the kingdoms of the world yes he showed him the kingdoms of the world and said i will give all of this to you as your inheritance right If you will only bow down before me and worship. And Jesus withstood that temptation as well. He took this route instead. In fact, we know that Jesus will have the nations as his inheritance. But it would not be gained through worshipping Satan. It would instead be gained through suffering. It would be gained through the cross and through the resurrection from the dead. And so we are to make this connection That Jesus did indeed come to have the nations as His inheritance. He defeated Satan in the wilderness and especially at the cross so as to bind the evil one, so that the nations could no longer be kept in darkness. And what has happened since then, brothers and sisters, we know that His disciples have been sent to the ends of the earth. They have been given this commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And they are to go with confidence because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. You see, the evil one has been conquered. He has been bound so as to not deceive the nations any longer. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has spread to the ends of the earth. You and I are a testimony to that fact. All of us, perhaps, most of us for sure, are Gentiles living on the farthest reaches of the earth from Israel And yet here we are worshiping and serving Yahweh through faith in Jesus the Messiah. It's marvelous to consider Satan has been bound by Christ at his first coming so that the nations will be his eternal inheritance. Let me conclude now, brothers and sisters, by making a few brief suggestions for application. And all of them have to do with not making the same mistakes that those in Nazareth made concerning their expectations for the Messiah. One... Let us be sure to not reduce Jesus down into a Messiah who has come to merely meet our needs on earth. His blessings are spiritual, and they are heavenly. He will bless us physically and on earth too, but those blessings will come to us at the consummation in the new heavens and earth. Life in this present age will be marked by trials and tribulations, by various sufferings, and ultimately death. The Lord Himself has said this. And so let us not be guilty of the same mistake as those in Nazareth made to reduce Jesus down into a Messiah who has come to merely meet our needs on earth. No, He has come to do so much more. Christ will bless His people in and through these tribulations now, and He will bring them safely home into the new heavens and earth, into the new creation that He has earned for them to and connected with this. Let us be sure to not reduce Jesus down into a Messiah who has come to merely bless us in the here and now. His blessings are eternal. We are blessed in Christ now, this is true, but we are called to patiently endure until we take possession of the fullness of our inheritance in Christ in the life to come. Just this past week I was talking with, with a brother about those who hold to this prosperity gospel, who claim that all who have faith in Jesus, at least if their faith is strong, they're going to be blessed now. Uh, they're going to be blessed physically now. They're going to be blessed financially now. In fact, if someone is sick, it's a, it's a symptom of weak faith, they say, and we would want to say in response to that, that's all nonsense. The, the, the Scriptures are clear that we're going to suffer tribulations in this world. And what about those in Christ Jesus and the fact that all die physically? All die. Is that death? Is that is an that indication of weak faith? No, of course not. The problem is this. Christ has come to heal us physically. He has. Did you know it? He has come to free us from death. That is true. That is true. He has come to make you prosper on earth. When will those blessings be had, brothers and sisters? In the life to come, at the consummation, in the new heavens and earth. That is when those blessings will be enjoyed in fullness. To say that they are to be ours now is to distort the truth of Scripture. No, God's people will suffer trials and tribulations in this world. We are to cling to Christ patiently and with hope concerning the life to come. So be very careful, brothers and sisters. Even those of you who have good, sound theology will be tempted in this regard. There is always going to be this temptation to reduce Jesus down into a Messiah who has come to bless us on earth now. It is not true. It is not entirely true. He blesses us now, of course, in spiritual ways. But we must patiently endure. We must store up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Three, let us be sure to not reduce Jesus down into a tribal Messiah. But always remember that he came to save all kinds of people. And this tendency towards tribalism is, is an error that we must always guard against. Don't you agree, brothers and sisters? Uh, Jesus came to save me and people like me, we might be tempted to say, but it is not so. He came to redeem people from all types of situations, rich and poor, powerful and weak. He came to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is why Paul wrote to Timothy saying, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and for Who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Far from teaching any form of universalism, this passage is telling us that we must pray fervently and faithfully for all kinds of people. For there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. God has not sent tribal mediators. He has sent one mediator, the second and greater Adam, to reconcile people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to Himself. So may we be faithful to pray for all nations, for all people. May we be faithful also to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all nations, for He has come to save all nations. Let's bow together now for a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Christ and the magnificent Savior that He is. We thank You that we do not serve a small Messiah, but but a very great Messiah, We thank you that he has come to accomplish salvation completely. Uh, We thank you that salvation is all by his work and all by the grace that you have shown to us. Father, we thank you also that he has come to save people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. I pray that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord, would be large in our hearts, that we would love him, worship, and serve him faithfully always. Help us to be about the work that you have given us to do. I pray that you would strengthen us by the same spirit that Christ was empowered by, do these things for our good and your glory we pray in Christ's name.